to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Elvis Stoiko. This Canadian figure skating legend needs no introduction. You very likely already know him as a two-time Olympic silver medalist, a seven-time Canadian champion, and a three-time world champion. Elvis won the Lionel Conacher Award in 1994 as Canada's top athlete, and in 1996, the Governor General awarded him with one of Canada's highest civilian honours, the Meritorious Service Decoration. Retiring from competitive skating after the 2002 Olympics, Elvis was inducted into the Skate Canada Hall of Fame, Canada's Sports Hall of Fame, and the Canadian Olympic Hall of Fame. After a very refreshing 12-year hiatus in Mexico, I guess Elvis missed his brutal Canadian winters too much because he returned to the GTA with his wife Gladys, and you will be happy to hear that he is still skating today. Welcome, Elvis Stoiko, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Oh, Andrew, thank you so much for having me on the on your podcast. Um, I'm doing great. My wife and I are doing great. Uh, we live just outside of uh, outside of Toronto, uh, near the racetrack here at Mossport, uh, actually Canadian Tire Motorsports Park, uh, which is one of the reasons, one of the big reasons why I moved back to Canada too, with the racing stuff and doing some acting. But uh, we're doing great, enjoying the summer, and it's been wonderful. Now, how did you choose Bowmanville as your home base? I understand you got about 140 acres there. Are you now a farmer? What do you, how put that in perspective? I can't even picture 140 acres. It's about 100, about just over 100 acres. It's it's mostly forest land. Um, I, I grew up. My dad was a was a landscaper, and uh, I grew up on a farm, a 50 acre farm, like a hobby farm. We had all the animals. We were self sufficient. We had our own uh, organic uh, vegetable garden, and we we grew everything there. So I grew up on that type of uh, uh, of environment, and I've always loved it. That's where I started dirt bike riding. Um, and and just enjoying the outdoors. So when I when we moved back to Canada and I was renting in Richmond Hill, Richmond Hill had changed so much. There was no you know land, and if you wanted anything, it was astronomical. Um, I wanted to get out in the outskirts, and and my wife um, Gladys uh, had worked down in Mexico a lot with um, the dog shelters down there and with wildlife and so forth. So when she came to Canada, she wanted to somehow insert herself in some way to help out with uh the shelters that we have here and so she got connected with the local wildlife uh center she works with raccoons rehabilitation she helps promoting them and then she she does uh, a lot of great stuff on the side to help out different shelters with food and things like that and she loves the outdoors so we we have raccoons out here feeding there's deer there's you name it we have it and and uh you know dirt bike riding and off-roading and then i'm very very close to the racetrack and and i can get downtown toronto if i've got a live audition or something for for acting uh, downtown or what have you, but it's wonderful out here. It's a great place to live and we really enjoy it. I've never heard someone speak so highly of raccoons. You, you must be a really good person. <laughs> well, it's, it's different the way people look at raccoons. Uh, I love the name. They call them in, in Spanish in, in, in Mexico, mapache. Mapaches, they, it's it, they're 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 wonderful. A lot of people don't understand that they think they're sort of a nuisance, but they actually have all animals. They have a very important um, uh, purpose in eco in ecosystem and, and raccoons actually get rid of wasp larvae that's one of their one of their functions 
So yeah, getting rid of the wasps is a good thing. Um, that's what I've been told along the way. I'm not a raccoon expert, but uh, we do see them out here. And, and uh, my wife does work with the, with the uh, not just with raccoons, but other wildlife as well. But um, yeah, they're a very, very important part. And they're, they're awesome animals actually. And uh, now it's just out here. We have, we have fisher cats. If people don't understand what a fisher cat is, that's the, they, they actually control the, the um, uh, porcupine population as well, because they're one of the only um uh, I think predators for porcupines because porcupines can actually make a real mess of trees and things like that. So they kind of balance out everything as well. But uh, yeah, no, it's, it's wonderful out here. We love all the, all the nature, the trees, everything. It's just wonderful. Well, I am learning too then, but I want to start this way, Elvis, with the airing of the grievances. Uh, I am 52. My hair has fled the scene and I can literally barely get out of bed in the morning. Elvis Stoiko, you are now on the other side of 50. You are absolutely still gorgeous. You have what appears to be all your hair. And frankly, you look like you could go out today and still compete without missing a beat. Please tell me, is this purely genetics? I, well, I'm, I'm blessed. My parents, um, both being from Eastern European descent, very hardy genetics. Uh, probably my parents, probably the two most, the toughest people that I've ever known. Um, my dad worked well into his sixties owning his own uh, landscaping company. Um, I know that for me, I grew up on all organic food. That was something that my mom, I was never fed baby food, baby formula, uh, nothing like that. Everything was right from, uh, our garden. My mom ground up everything, made everything pureed from, carrots to you name it she did it all um and that was one of the things she talked about she's when you have a kid one day make sure you follow that path I'm like absolutely I, I think it was a combination of genetics and also really really good um nutrition I've always been very cognizant of that uh, I'm not crazy in nutrition but the thing is, is I I'm I use what's right for me because there's so many fads that are out there, diets and things like that. Oh, eat this. It's good for everybody. No, it's not. It's It depends on the person. And I had to do very individual uh, focus on that. I spent most of my career, most of my life trying to figure out an issue that I had with my skin. I had an acne issue, very, mm-hmm. very severe cystic acne all over my skin. I had to do some research on that. And it took me 20 years, over 25 years, I had cystic acne into my 30s until I um, basically cured it with an alkaline base, uh, not just diet, but mostly water. Um, I have a machine that we have a machine that makes alkaline water and it's fantastic. It cleared my skin within two months, but, um, the way that worked sort of, sort of reader's digest version is that the, um, acidic buildup in the body can be caused by it. the most, uh, predominant thing is stress and sugar, carbonation, things like that. Um, a lot of people, their body will either put it into their joints. So you end up getting joint issues and things like that. My body was dispelling it quickly, but through my skin. Mm -hmm. So all the years of stress of competing and training and all of that, it would build up. And then my body was like, I don't want this. How do I get rid of it? And it would push it through my skin, through the back, which is of course our largest organ is our skin until I, um, figure that out. It was sort of, um, kind of a shot in the dark all the time to try to figure things out. Like I got th- rid of uh, things like um, milk and dairy that was processed. Um, I hadn't had a glass of milk since 1990. Mm. Um, you know, I, I drink all sort of organic stuff. So I stayed away from milk. I'm not milk. Not, I'm not lactose intolerant, but my body doesn't like it. It builds up um, 
acidic buildup in my body. So when I go to train, I already have a deficit with lactic acid. So it just genetically, there's some positive negatives, just learning how your body works and how it deals with different types of things. Um, Another thing that most people, you know, everyone cut sugar, cut sugar, cut sugar, cut sugar. Yes. But for me, I need sugar. So my body testing, getting it all tested, my body actually uses sugar for energy. And if I don't have it, I I tried to take out sugar completely out of everything. And it was the worst thing I ever did Mm. until I got tested. Um, and realize that I'm a very rare genetic type that uses sugar for energy, brain energy, and physical energy. So I have to be really important and cognizant of that. So every person is different. Um, and, you know, overall, you know, luckily my, my hair is still here. My parents have, my dad still cur- curls and wavy. He's 86 and he's got his hair and stuff. It's, it is graying a little bit, but overall I'm, I'm glad that I have hair and it's, it's been, uh, you know, I've been very lucky. <laughs> Count me in the jealous category. So now not only am I jealous of you, Elvis, but your father as well. Let's please go back all the way and get the Elvis Stoico story. You are a proud son of the GTA, more specifically York Region, and even more specifically Richmond Hill, which I am going to tell you is the uh, host of this podcast. We are from Richmond Hill. Awesome. Please tell us about your birth and your upbringing. Yeah, so I was born in Newmarket, Ontario. And the first nine to 10 years of my life, I lived in Queensville uh, and just south of Keswick on a 50 acre farm. And then in 1983, my, my father ran his business. A lot of it, a lot of his uh, contracts were in Richmond Hill, like the Hillcrest Mall, Bafe, all those areas. Um, and uh, a lot of the homes there, the, the, uh, the attached homes and, and, and so forth, townhomes. So he looked after all of that. And so when I started skating, I started skating in Newmarket and um, it was the neighbor helped my mom because we didn't know where to take me. The neighbor actually raced dirt bikes. That's how I got into dirt bikes as well. So that's how that kind of all started. And um, I started skating. I was about four and a half years old, skating in Newmarket. And then from there, the coach said, look, we need, you need to take Elvis somewhere with a bigger club, better skaters, that type of thing. Then I started training in the Toronto cricket skating and curling club down in Toronto. Back then we didn't have the 404, the way it came all the way up. So it was an hour drive to get downtown at least um, even back then, which we mm-hmm. didn't have traffic, but it was, it was a long way. And, and so we made the commute and then we ended up moving to Richmond Hill to be a little bit closer, better for my dad's work. Uh, better for us. We had a three acre land. We had still had chickens. We had chickens wow. and stuff. So we had our fresh eggs and things like that. So we scaled things down to make things a little bit simpler. Um, and then from 1983 on, uh, that's where uh, most of my developmental years was in Richmond Hill. I had an incredible support from uh, the mayors, all the mayors over the years from Mayor Bell and, and Mayor Burrow and and so forth. And uh, there was a sign there with me and I still go back to train there. I still have connections there, even though I don't live there. Um, that is still considered to me my home. Um, and they've always been wonderful to me in that, in that community. So it's, you know, right up till about 2001, uh, roughly around or 1990, 1999, my parents moved to King city. Um, and then at the end of my career, I decided to move to Mexico to make things I just, I need some anonymity because skating was so big at the time that it was just, I needed to find myself away from skating and um, also getting tired of the winters and being in training in the cold and living in the cold and all that. And I was living on the road for 10 months out of the year. So it was a great place to hang my hat. And um, it was interesting because I'd like seven, eight years later, I met my wife 
down there, a, sk- a fellow skater as well, which was wonderful. And uh, there was a number of years where I didn't skate at all. I didn't think I was coming back to Canada. I was living down there full time. And uh, eventually things started developing and changing for me um, on a sort of on a career path. And uh, it brought us back here and it's given Gladys a chance to become Canadian citizen, which is great. So she has dual citizenship. Uh, so it's easier for her to travel around in some places and she loves the country, but we do go back to visit her family. And, and that sort of gives you the sort of overall view, a quick view of, of sort of where we are today and, and how I got here. Yeah, well, that's great. And we're going to touch on each of those. I want to ask you, Elvis, the question that I'm sure you've never, 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 ever been asked this before. Who are you named after and why? <laughs> well, my parents um, both came to Canada in the 50s. And um, I was, uh, they had me later, later on, my parents were both in their 80s. So um, Elvis Presley was huge. My dad was a singer as well. When he was singing, he was a tenor. And my mom also did dancing, um, folk dancing and things like that. So um, they escaped the Russian insurgents in 56. My mom was a 56er. They called her 56er from Budapest, Hungary. Uh, I said Budapest, Hungary. Mm -hmm. And then my dad came from Yugoslavia or now Slovenia. Uh, Same thing escaped that insurgence and after the war and and, um, immigrated to Canada. And of course, you know, like I said, Elvis was huge. He was such a big star, amazing uh, artist. And and, uh, they wanted a a different name. And that's how I got the name. (laughs) It's great. And and you were training, as you note, from a very young age, you were in serious training. What did you do for school? Were there today there's sports schools where they accommodate more elite athletes with their academics and sports, but I don't think those exist in your day. How did you handle? Did you go to a regular high school? You know, I I was very lucky. The schools I went to, there was private schools that I um, my parents put me in. There was one school in particular. Um, it was called Donnell, and it was in Newmarket actually. And they had it was it's kind of like a little house in the prairie. There was kindergarten to grade eight, and there's only like maybe thirty students. And um, they would allow me to come in late to cl- late to school around ten o'clock because I was on the ice at five thirty. So I'd skate from five thirty till about nine get to the rink at 10 or I guess, sorry, get to, get to school at 10. And then I'd be there till about two to three. And then I get picked up early to go back to the rink. So I was skating anywhere from four to six hours a day. Wow. And, um, it was, it was a lot and they coordinated, um, a lot of that and helped me through my education from basically grade five to eight, which was the big sort of real formative part of it. Uh, then from there, um, I went to country day school, CDS in King city and they were just starting out. They were a middle school and I was the, my class was the first graduating class for high school. So we started grade nine and every year they added a grade on and we we're the first graduating class back in 1991, I think. And they were very accommodating. Um, the teachers were amazing, even though they didn't have the option for tu- tutoring, the teachers all helped me out. So I would go an hour before uh, school and do uh, a tutored class then I would do first period and then I'd leave for the day and then I'd come after school and then I would do another tutor class. So if there was four periods, I would get three a day. So I'd only miss one. So they were, they were amazing. So I was able to get my 
you know, my high school diploma, I'll get to university and do a few years in that, but they were, the schools were, were fantastic. I know country day schools now is a really big school. Now they've grown and, and it, it's amazing, but they were, they were quite small at the time and, and they were uh, amazing for me and they allowed me to, you know, get my education, what I needed. Um, and then when I made my path, I was like, yeah, I don't, I'm not a school kind of guy. So I was all physical. And then I did a few years of university at York and yeah. they, they helped out. And then after that, after three years, I was like, I made the Olympic team and I'm like, yeah, I got to, I want to focus on this. This is my, this is my path. Yeah. But, but what the incredible discipline you had to have growing up to do that, to do the training and the school. Now, Elvis, I want to talk to you in the seventies it to go as a boy in the GTA, you play ice hockey. And I wonder if there was any social pressure or pushback for you to instead get into figure skating, especially as a male figure skater. Talk about how you ended up in figure skating as opposed to hockey and what that path was like. Yeah, I've, I've always been into individual sports. I never, I never gratted, like felt like I wanted to play hockey. I never kind of went that direction. Um, never really interested in it. I love to watch it. And, you know, there's I play once in a while for fun, but never was like, yeah, I want to go. I want to make the NHL. Um, skating was at the forefront is something I picked. Um, I was into dirt bikes and um, later on for, definitely for, for cars and stuff. Motorsports was my other passion along with it. So there's, there was three things going on. There was the skating, the motorsports, and then the martial arts. Those are the three things that I did. I focused on, I started um, martial arts when I was about 10, uh, went through the cycle with the karate and then, and then found my, my real, um, real style that fit me was the Kung Fu, the Chinese Kung Fu, um, the Hungar Southern style that I learned. And that's the thing that actually took my skating to a whole other level mm. that got me doing quads consistently before everybody else, the mindsets, the honing, you know, my instructor that worked with me, uh, helped hone the skills that I had worked on weaknesses and things like that. So that pathway, um, was going that direction and it was all individual sports. Uh, so it, it, growing up though, it was not like in Newmarket, there was, I think there were two boys in the whole club. The rest mm-hmm. were all girls. That's, that's a funny story. My first competition, I think I was six and, um, they didn't have, my first competition wasn't, a, you know, doing a solo with music. It was basically doing edges and things like that. So um, they didn't, uh, there was only two boys. So they just lumped all the boys and all the girls together. So there was like, I don't know, 25 kids competing. And they didn't think that a little, a boy would win. So I ended up winning. And there's a little, I have a little trophy of a girl skating. It's like, <laughs> it says, I was like, oh, 1977 or whatever, gold medal or gold uh, first place for this. And there's a little girl on the trophy, not the yeah. little boy. It was actually kind of funny because I used to have a little boy and a little girl that separate for the men's and ladies events. So it was actually kind of funny. I still have that trophy and I laugh about it, but yeah, it was, it, you know, you know, either you, you have a hockey stick in your hand, well, hockey, hockey skates, or, you know, you're wearing spandex. And I always <laughs> make that joke. I always make that joke at, at the track when I'm racing and stuff. And, uh, you know, we would joke around and, you know, I'd pass a guy out there and they'd be like, Hey man, what's going on on the track? Hey, you're pretty fast. Hey, just got beat by a guy that wears spandex for a living. (laughs) So we, we, we have fun. We, we joke around with that a little bit, but, um, yeah, it, it's, um, back then, even in the eighties, it was not, it it was still hard. I get picked on. I, I was picked on a little bit in high school at first until I was on TV for the first time. And then that all changed. Um, because they, they, you know, they, they thought I was just, it was a hobby. I was, I was out. My, my nickname was the new kid. 
because yeah. I would be, I'd do first period at high school and then I'd be gone for the day and then I'd come back after. And then they'd see me, I'd have a break in the spring around April. So then I'd be in class more often, but like, Hey, here's a new kid. He's that, you know, it's, it was kind of fun, but the, it, 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 I did get picked on, but I was so, I didn't care. I was like, whatever. I'm, I'm focused on my, on my dream. I'm going to do what I need to do to become the best at what I want to do. And, you know, and uh, you know, when people say you can't do something, them the first one to be like, I'm, I'm going to go for it, you know? Well, and you certainly proved that. Let's talk a little about some of your successes. Let's talk about the Olympics. You have represented Canada at an incredible four different Winter Olympic Games. Your debut, 1992 in Albertville, France. You were only 19 years old. You finished seventh despite skating a technically strong routine. What do you remember about that experience of going over to Albertville? Uh, Albertville was, well, each Olympics was different. Um, but Albertville was, was, uh, another magical, that was my first real magical moment at the Olympics. And, and, um, I had, uh, I actually had an injury at the national championships, a fractured foot that didn't, um, show up on x-ray back then. It was, uh, the x-rays that you have, sometimes when you have a hairline fracture, they don't show up on the first few x-rays. So somehow I, I, I was skating and I, I fractured my foot taking off on a jump we didn't know I had to get an insert put in my skate so I I made the I I squeaked through the nationals to make the team and uh we found um I guess an insole that would allow to relieve some stress on the foot and um I was a little bit worried going in this is my first olympics but the week the, the the week and a half leading up was it was magical I was skating so well um and it was my first um, big competition other than world championships. Cause I had done two previously that I had a chance to be in the final group of men. I was top 10 or top 12, mm-hmm. but the top six, when you break the top six and you're in the last group of skaters, that's a big, that's the big step. And so I was, I drew last to skate in the whole event in the short program. I went out and skated clean and was sixth. And it was, I was like, oh my God, I'm in the last group of men. Like, this is amazing. I, then I, then I drew last to skate again. And I was like, oh my gosh. And usually last to skate is, I always like the pressure. Yeah. Because I, I always liked knowing, I used to watch what my competitors did. So I'd know, and then I'd calculate. And I won a few world titles based on that. They made some mistakes and I was able to throw something in and wow. change things around. I was able to do that because I had the wherewithal and, and I could handle that, that weight. So um, I was skating last and I remember that the competition was going on and every time I'd go out to peek at it and then I had to focus and usually I would be the one in the stands. I'd be finished and watching the rest of the event. And this time I was like, I was in it. Yeah. I was in the thick of it. And I remember hearing, uh, I was in the back kind of focused on my thing and every once in a while I'd hear a Ooh or Oh, and I, and like, it, people were falling. Like it was like I Kurt had made mistakes and every, and then I was about to go out to skate and, and Peter Barna, I remember from uh, Czechoslovakia, he was coming down for one of his last jumps and he just absolutely wiped the ice. And I was just like, I heard so many mistakes and I'm like, I got a real shot at this, at getting maybe a podium. I'm six, this could happen, you know? So then I cleared that out of my mind and then I just focused on my thing and, and I just had this incredible magical skate, skated clean. And I think it was the only skater in the whole event that actually skated both short and long program clean. Wow. And then I dropped the place. In. I had an, mm. I had an ordinal, I think of uh, a fourth place to uh, 11th. Like back then the judges would, 
give you, you know, your score of this perfect six, and then you get a 5.5, 5.5. And when you have artistic and technical, you add the scores together and you, and you get sort of, you get an ordinal and ordinal is your placing. So you have first, a second or third, and that ordinal would come up in the, all nine judges where it was like, I had a third place and 11th. Like mm. one judge thought I should be third and one thought I should be 11th. Like where, like, where does that come from? Mm. I think the Russian had me 11th. Actually. <laughs> uh, but it, it, it was, it was just, it was bizarre. And there was no, I don't think there was a, I don't know. I can't remember if there's a Canadian judge on the panel, but it was sporadic and I actually dropped the placing and it was like this huge shock. Yeah. And so everyone talked about my coach never really was really that outspoken on like weird things that happen in figure skating, which is normal. Yeah. Um, He never talked about it. We would just skate our best and and do our thing. And um, he made some comments and was like, yeah, they really need to see Elvis as, as you know, uh, politically when I looked at it, you know, I skated well enough to be third. Um, yeah. you know, I should have been around fourth or fifth politically. Like when you look at all the politics of, you know, earning your dues and that's what I was doing, you know, earning my, yeah. I had to really work at it. So, you know, that, that was a big thing. And, and I remember, uh, specifically back then we didn't have the cell phones we didn't have, you know, we get, you end up get faxes and things <laughs> like that. So CBC at the time said, Don Cherry wants to, Don Cherry did a big like rant about you on like a hockey night in Canada because uh, he was like, you know, doing this thing. We have our Canadian boy over there and he got ripped off and and he did this huge thing. And I became like, became known. That was one of the things that I I became known. Uh, My name got thrown around because of Don. And so I got to actually talk to Don Cherry and we became friends and stuff. And and, um, it was really, really cool. Uh, I didn't realize the impact it had because back then when you're, you're, you're in Europe, you're kind of disconnected from your home. Now you're connected no matter where you are in the world with, with social media. But back then you were like, as soon as I came home, I landed and the, all these people at the airport and it was just like massive hysteria. I was just like, where'd this come from? It was unbelievable. And then the next month I was competing at the worlds and then all eyes were on me. Can Elvis yeah. do it again? And I skated great and ended up third. And that was the year that really, switched to be not just a world competitor, but a world champion. I can be on the podium and, and make a difference. And that's where, you know, third, second, first, I just started going up the ladder that way. And it was that, that it was really a pinnacle moment in my career at that point. Well, certainly you took off because you come back in 94, Lillehammer, Norway, a silver, more experienced. This is your second games. How do you, how did you feel different at that games than you did in your first one at Albertville? Um, I was relaxed at both. Um, and I was, uh, even though I was ranked number two in the world, cause I was behind Kurt, Kurt was world champion and we had two top guys in the country. So he was keeping me on my toes. I was keeping him on his toes. Um, and we had a number of skaters come back, for, uh, from the professional ranks. It was called the Brian Boitano rule, the Boitano rule. So Boitano came back and he was an Olympic champion, made 88. And Victor Petrenko also, for the year off, came back from 92. He was Olympic champion. And then it, I was basically ranked like fifth or something. Like when you looked at the thing, and I was just like, wow, this is this is awesome. Like, because people say, well, that's not fair. And I'm like, no, I want to compete. This like, I watch these guys. I, I compete against Victor a little bit, but he was sort of on his way out when I was coming in. But I never competed against Boitano. And he was like a, a hero of mine. And I was like, this is amazing. So... I was just excited to be there. And I had this incredible 
um, just feeling of being in Lillehammer in Norway. I actually loved being there, just the energy, the people, everything. So um, the week was magical. Everything was great. I, I made only that one little, I popped one jump, which means instead of doing a triple axel, I did a single. And then I changed the program and did the jump. So I kind of fixed it. It didn't fall. I just didn't do the two revolutions, mm-hmm. um, the two extra revolutions. So um I threw it in later and still skated great and, and felt awesome. And then there was, of course, controversy between me and the Russian and yada, yada, yada. But, um, you know, I, I again, it was the, the Bruce Lee program that I did for honoring Bruce and my hair, you know, the things I learned from Kung Fu. And, and uh, you know, I, the story in the next week when we were watching Nancy Kerrigan skate, because I was a Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding fiasco. That was so huge. That's, you know, one of the reasons why skating was so big. Um, we were watching the event and our chef de mission comes to me and says, Elvis, there's somebody who would like to meet you. I'm like, okay, who is it? He goes, I'm not going to tell you. You're going to know who it is when you see this person. I'm like, all right, he's, he's actually here. He's on the other side of the rink. So, okay. Right. Rock all the way around to the rink. And this is, I'm, I'm calm now. The competition's over. I'm watching the ladies event. Everybody came to see Oksana Bayul, the orphan from Ukraine and Nancy Kerrigan and uh, lots of craziness. And so I walked down the stairs to the seats and this guy stands up, turns around and it's Chuck Norris. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my God, it's Chuck Norris. And he, he extends his hand and he goes, Elvis, I watched you. I wasn't here, but I want to. Uh, I watched. I watched you on TV, and I want to thank you for honoring my friend, Bruce. And I sat with him for like an hour watching the ladies' event, and I was teaching him about skating and marks and all the stuff. I asked him about Bruce, and I we talked about, and he got me in touch with Bruce's widow, uh, Linda Lee, and I was. I, they sent me a whole bunch of like Bruce Lee paraphernalia and things, and I ended up getting um, Randy Edelman and. Um, the uh, Rob Cohen who did the movie Dragon the Bruce Lee story, the director, they sent me a laser disc signed by the director. They sent me the sheet music, actually handwritten sheet music. One of the pieces framed uh, with Randy Edelman signing, thanking me for using their, their music. And it was, it was amazing. I still have that. I was still trying to finish my basement here so I can actually put some of that stuff up and um, it was such an incredible time. So people were like, oh, are you disappointed you didn't win gold? And I'm like, that's my gold medal. Like yeah. that, that moment to, to be recognized, um, you know, outside of my sport on that level was just, uh, it was, it was incredible. And um, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I cherish those, those moments and still remember them. And I love sharing them because they were so great. Still feel like a little kid when I talk oh. about it. I still remember those moments. Well, that great stories. And as you know, uh, COVID had to get a vaccine to protect it from Chuck Norris. So yeah. <laughs> was it, was it, was it, uh, there was um, Kiefer Sutherland when you doing the show 24, you know, Jack Bauer, I was, they, they were saying that, I don't know, it was like uh, Chuck Norris was wearing Jack Bauer underwear or, or Jack Bauer was wearing Chuck Norris underwear or something like that, right? But Chuck Norris was, you know, he's he's a dude. He's still the dude, you know, no matter what. And, and Chuck was he's such a wonderful guy. Um, before We lost contact for a while, but I used to get, we used to get like Christmas cards from him. and his, Oh, wow, that's and fantastic. And stuff. Yeah, it was really cool. Such a great dude, yeah. Now, Elvis, you brought it up. If you don't mind, I do want to ask you, 1994 was the whole Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan kerfuffle. Uh, if you don't mind, maybe I'll set it up quickly and then you can tell me you were there. I don't know uh, if you had any special stories about it, uh, but 
during that lead up to those Olympics at the American trials, Tanya Harding, unbeknownst to her, apparently, her boyfriend, Jeff Galuli, clubbed Nancy Kerrigan during these nationals. Nancy Kerrigan had to back out the famous uh, clip. This was pre-internet, pre-social media. Kerrigan is moaning, why, why, why me? This forced her to pull out. Tanya Harding got the spot at the Olympics. Fast forward to the Olympics. Nancy Kerrigan is given a spot. They're both skating. Tanya Harding skate lace breaks. She is given a re-skate. There's all this controversy. At the end of the day, Nancy Kerrigan gets second. Tanya Harding, the villain, finishes completely out of everything. But this was the biggest scandal. You were over there for the Olympics. Were you uh, kind of outside of all this in your own bubble? Or were you aware of everything going on? And what stories do you have from that time? We were we were definitely aware of it. Uh, we also had the you know Brian Boitano, the Boitano rule. So Boitano was back, um, Petrenko was back, uh, Jane Torval and Christopher Dean, who won eighty four Olympics, was back. Um, Gordy Grankov was back. Uh, Katerina Witt was back. Like we had these huge names back into it. So everyone talked about Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding, that that was the thing that created this the the, the massive thing that made skating big. It wasn't just that. It, all these big names came back to compete because it allowed um, professionals to come back or, or ineligible skaters come back to compete. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. It was just a mix of insanity there at Olympics. It was it was such a – it was so crazy. I remember the first um, – <clears throat> I think – I think we were done competing. The, the men were always the week before. Ladies were always they're, – they're the premier – they call it the premier event. So they're at, there's two weeks of Olympics. They're usually at the end, like the last Friday, Saturday. We're usually competing on the Thursday the week before. So we get to watch, stay and watch the rest of the games relax, which is great. Mm-hmm. So we, we finished competing, and they had um, – Nancy showed up earlier and was skating, but Tanya had not shown up for practice yet. So finally – there was the first practice that had them together for the first time since nationals. And it was just around, just before then there was the whole Galuli thing that kind of figured out he was involved and she may like, she may have been implicated in it. They, they weren't sure. It was, just, there was this mumbling in the back. This was all sort of building. So we went uh, to watch this practice and it was on the practice rink, which was r- beside the other one on uh, the main rink. So we show up and we wanted to support because we support some other skaters that were skating on that practice. There were six girls in the practice. One was Lily Lee, who was um, competed for Korea. She's an American girl, competed for Korea. And she was on the practice and she's like, oh my God, what a circus. There had to be 300 media with these big long lenses, all like just waiting for some something to happen. And Every time they would kind of even just sort of skate by each other slowly, it was like, it was insane. It was just the, the, the most insane thing. I was there with Kurt. Uh, we had like, and all the skaters came to watch this circus. So we, we, we don't usually go, we'd go and watch some practices, but everybody came to that practice to see if something would go down. And so, if I may interject, Elvis, if, if I'm not mistaken, Nancy Kerrigan chose at that practice to wear the same figure skating outfit that she had been wearing at the time she was clubbed. Wow. Well, that I didn't know. That's actually really cool. That's actually really cool. You've done your research, man. That's <laughs> awesome. Oh, I love that. I'm going to use that. I'm going to steal that. Um, it's good. So that, that was, yeah, it, like, 
amazing. Is like there are little things like that, but it, it just. So we show. I remember when Nancy showed up, even before that, before practice, she. Uh, we were walking around in the venue. I was just coming. I just finished practice. The ladies were on next. Um, and I think she was coming in and she had like body, massive bodyguards around. It, it, she was like completely encased in this bubble. And I saw her walk by and just like, oh my God, this is crazy. And then of course the orphan from Ukraine, Oksana Bayul, that was another story. She came out of nowhere the year before, uh, like world champion, like, Never did like competed at uh, Europeans once, went to worlds once, won it, went to Olympics, and then was like, it was unbelievable. Like the stardom, the, 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 it just skyrocketed. So that was another incredible story. And how Victor Petrenko was helping her. Like that's another, like, it, like there were so many stories there that made skating just go, just balloon, where we'd go and do champions and ice down in the States after and tour 92 cities. And you'd go and you go to a venue and you're sold out 33,000 people at the Alamo Dome. Wow. Like it, it was mind boggling. Like we were massive rock stars. It was just nuts. Well, to the, to the listener, I want to just put a postscript on this story. At the end of the day, uh, Tanya Harding got probation, but every other person involved in that actually went to jail, did jail time, which is yeah. crazy. Now, Elvis, there's, a name which everyone knows yours there's another name that every canadian knows and you've mentioned a few times kurt can mm-hmm. i assume it is fair to say that kurt browning was your foil your biggest competitor your your biggest rival but he was also i guess you call him a, a frenemy he was a friendly enemy yeah in a way you know kurt kurt and i were we're different animals like completely different animals and we did get along we did have our you know um there's the Kurt group and the Elvis group. They always competed because we were so different in how we approach skating. Um, and, you know, when I jumped, I, I literally jumped onto the scene in 1990. I was 88 Canadian junior champion. 1989 didn't make nationals. I had a, I got growth spurred. I, I almost, almost quit skating. It was like a weird place for me. And then I trained so hard and everything came together. And that's the year I, I connected with my um, Kung Fu instructor and my, my career changed there. That was the first big change before the 92 Olympics. This was the one that get me on the scene, like get me on the world stage. So I jumped on, showed up at nationals, had a triple axle back then. It was kind of very few people had it. And I, I already had it at 17, which was really young. And I showed up and Kurt was like, you know, world champion. He was, he's actually uh, trying on new skates. He was kind of, no one was really in his league, but they didn't expect this like 17 year old to come out of nowhere. So I showed up on the scene and I didn't make mistakes and I just showed up and skated clean and Kurt had a really rough go. This was in Sudbury in 1990. And it was just, that's where the whole thing, like, I should have won that event and da, 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 and all this sort of stuff. He went on to win worlds a month, uh, two months later, but it, that was the first time that we went head to head. And then after that, it was just Elvis against Kurt yeah. for 1991, He was out because of injury. So I competed against uh, one of his uh, stable mates from Edmonton, um, Michael Slipchuk. Um, and my injury was there. So I ended up second and still made the team. Michael won. And then the next year, 93, Back again, Kurt and I were fighting. It was even closer. It was yeah. so close. He got six zeros. I got six zeros on Hamilton. It was just insane. It was a live event. 
Uh, there's a guy in an Elvis jumpsuit running up and down the stands before the event started. People Elvis for president and prime minister and Kurtz this and it was it was huge. So then and then '94 was the knockout punch. Finally, I could I could beat him before he retired, and that was in '94. And uh, it was you know with the Bruce Lee uh, program, and and that was my vehicle I used, and it was it was great, but throughout those four years, you know, having a world champion in your home country, it's nothing better. It just makes, I know I made him better. He made me better. Um, and just so different approaches to skating, um, different styles, which was, which made it great for skating and made it such a, a great storybook kind of, uh, adventure for everyone that loved skating and watched it. And, um, yeah, we still tour today and, and still skating today. You know, he's a few years older than me, but um, yeah, it, it was just, uh, it was such an amazing time for us. Um, there was a lot after he retired, there was a lot of really good competitors. I, I went against um, Todd Eldridge. She was one of the toughest competitors ever from the States. We're friends. We're both into cars and racing and stuff. And a number of Russians that I competed against as well that were very, very um, tough but I definitely, you know, those, those four years with Kurt made me better, made me stronger, showed me what I needed to do to become uh, the best in the world. Cause that's in my mind, that's no matter what I want to do, only the best I can be at it and compete at the highest level. And uh, you know, I think, I thank him for that because he did make me better. Well, clearly this was a healthy competition. It helped spur you on. And that brings me to a question for you because I can see you're driven Unlike many other people, let's talk about the quintessential Elvis Stoico moments. There's twofold. At the 91 World Championships, you were the first person to land a quadruple double toe loop jump combination. And in 97, you landed a quadruple triple toe loop jump combination again at the Worlds. For each of these two game-changing achievements, did you practice them so much that you absolutely knew you could make it happen? Or did you go out there with any trepidation going, mm, I don't know if this is going to go. Were you 100% certain you were going to hit those? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. In, um, the, 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 I'll tell you the lead up to doing the quad. So 19, 1990, um, going into that, that year with Kurt, I was, the big thing was to get a triple axle. And so the whole, even the season leading up, like uh, our season starts from September and goes to March. And I was young enough to compete at the junior world championships. So internationally, I compete as a junior, but in nationally, I was competing as a senior. So junior worlds used to be in December and the world championships was in March. So junior worlds was in December. So I'd go to junior worlds and uh, I was just like, I got to get this triple axle. If I don't have it, it's, I'm, I'm not going to, I shouldn't even, I'm done. I have to quit if I don't get this jump because it's a waste of time. Wow. So, um, I trained so hard and, and I met my instructor that summer. So for Kung Fu. So we started working in like June or July, July of that year. We started working and, and he said, it'll take a little bit of time, but he says, it's going to, it's going to kick in the, the training. We worked on mental, we worked on ex muscle explosion. So September, October, I'm working, I'm still running programs. I'm doing, I have all the other triples, but I'm missing the triple axle. And I'm working on a the quadruple a little bit because it wasn't a, it wasn't a mainstay. It wasn't a requirement, but to do it would be a big deal. So I was working on kind of both of them, September, October, November, December, it's getting a little closer, but I'm still kind of like, ah, it's not there. Just hours and hours of work. I'm training hard, doing my run throughs, but this one element that's just eluding me, 
I get to the Junior World Championships in, um, in Colorado Springs. That's where uh, they're in the Broadmoor. And I'm on practice, this one practice. And the extra little bit of adrenaline sometimes help on practice. All of a sudden, I'm like, man, I can really feel, I feel different doing this, this element today. So I'm warming up. And I go out and I rotate and I land backwards. And I just slip off my edge, but it's perfect. But I mm. slip off the edge and I'm like, oh, my God, I can do this. I, the timing came. It just arrived. And in practice, I started landing them. Wow. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is incredible. <laughs> so I get the triple axel. So I throw it in the program for competition. First time ever, but I, I pop it. It's okay. So I, that's the place to do it. So I end up junior worlds in December. So give you, so I'm at junior worlds. I end up, I think, eighth overall yeah. at the junior world level. And I should have been, technically, if I skated better, I should have been like top four. That's where I should have been because I was pushing those guys. So then I, I come home and then I have divisional championships, which is a qualifier for nationals. So I go, now I've got a triple axle. I come home. Everyone's like, Oh my God, you got this elusive triple axle. Like it's even to this day, it's not, it's not easy to do. Girls are doing them now, but the technique and, and, and everything is different. The training and and the equipment, even the equipment is lighter. So it helps. Mm -hmm. So I go to divisionals and I, I tried and I land my very first one in competition in divisional championships. So I'm like, okay, I feel solid. So I go to Canadians in Sudbury and I'm just, the whole year is just building and building. Now it's like really building. And this is where that competition, I show up other than Kurt, there was only one other guy that could do a triple axel, not super consistent, but could do it. And there's other guys that are trying it. So I show up out of nowhere because no one, no one saw me during the whole competition season, really, because I only did junior worlds. It was just junior worlds, but no one saw me do the axle except that yeah. divisionals, which was just divisionals. I show up out of nowhere, triple axle, all the triples, and I skate clean, and everyone's like mouth open, going, uh, "Oh, this okay. is over." This is like, yeah. So I make the world team, and then I go to worlds and I skate clean again. So, and, but I do the triple axel and I remember we, we, at nationals, we jump back a bit nationals. Uh, I make the world team and we're all doing uh, exhibition practice. So I make the world team. I'm skating with the world team. We're prepping for the show that night. I'm all excited. I skate around. I land my first quad dope. I land my first quadruple clean. I'm like, Oh my God. So I got triple axel and a quad. So then I go to the worlds. I don't put a quad in cause I don't have it prepped for that, but I do triple axle and I end up. So three months later after junior worlds, I, I, I skate the long program. I end up sixth in the long program at worlds, my first worlds. And I end up ninth in the world, my first year. And this is, this is, that was the big step. You know, two years later I do Olympics mm-hmm. and I, and then I make the podium. But I go, you know, the next year after that, 91, that's when I, I, I add the quad in. And it was interesting because that year was brutally difficult. So from 1990, I finished Worlds in 19, uh, March of 90. Uh, and that year I gained like 12 pounds. I grew up because I turned 18. And all of a sudden I grew a few inches and I gained weight and I, I lost almost all my jumps. So triple wow. act was hard to do. Everything was hard to do. And I'm like fighting going... Elvis is going to compete against Kurt next year. Now the pressure is on to actually do it. So I'm like, Oh my God. And then I lose my timing on all my jumps. and I'm freaking out. So I'm fighting the whole year. 
I go to like my first international, like big international. I go to Skate America. I'm last in the short program. I'm last. I skate so bad. It's horrible. Yeah. It's so bad. So that I skate, I, I miss like two elements in the short program. I'm last. And my coach is like, you were sitting in the kissing cry. He looks at me kind of from the side of his face. And he's like, that was kind of rough, eh? And I'm like, yeah, it was kind of rough. So, and then, and then it was hitting me. I go in the long program and I skate clean. Like, and I hadn't skated clean all year in practice. And I do, and I was like, what is going on with my consistency? So we, we, we so the quad is like, I, I practice it like once in a while, but the triple axles elusive, all my other jumps, like one day I'm laying quads next day. I can't do a triple loop, which is like so much easier. So I'm, I'm playing yo-yo all year. So this is the 1990 into the 91 season. I go to, I go to nationals against Kurt. I skate. Okay. You know, I play second um, and I make the world team and, uh, and we show up at, in Munich and I'm still all over the place. Like I, I'm like, Oh my God, this is just, I, I just want to skate well. And we, we're not sure. I, I practiced the quad in the program. I, I think I landed it once all year in practice, like uh-huh. practice once I landed it in the program. Okay. So I'm sending, I go in the short program and I pop and I pop the axle. I'm like, Oh, so I'm luckily not a lot. A lot of guys made mistakes. So I was sixth. Okay. Sixth or seventh going into the long uh, program. And I'm like, Oh my God, just, just trust yourself. Cause I don't know what's going to happen. Like this yeah. was, this year was so all over because of the weight change and everything was really difficult. Had a lot of people talking to me. Elvis, this is normal. Like this is, this is really, this is the hard part to get through. So I start the program off and, um, I end up, I do the first triplets. I pop the axle again. I'm like, Oh God. Mm-hmm. So then I do a single and I keep I, I go in and I'm like, for some reason I do this spin and the next jump would be the quad. If I was to do it, I'm skating down the ice and I'm skating back towards my coach to set up for the quad. And I'm like, I feel really good. Like it was was weird switch. It was like, it it was like that the whole year was like, I'd feel off or I'd feel super on. It was nothing in between. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'm like, freaking hell, I can do this. Yeah. It was that moment that I decided to do the freaking thing. Like it was that moment. You were in the middle of it. I was in the middle and I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to, I'm just going to throw it in. I'm just going to chuck it in there. And I, is- and I do it and I do it. I risk it and I do it. It was in the moment. And that some of my best, like trusting your gut, I teach skaters. I teach athletes, teach kids like about this, trusting that instinct because the instinct will kick in. I'll let you know. And I do this a lot when I'm racing cars, like I'm on the track and there's, you know, when I got to pass guys and stuff, you get, you, you get, you get a feel. So I go and I nail this thing and then I skate great after I knew I do the, I do another axle and I skate great. And I end up six in the world. So I, the year before I was ninth, then I go to six. And then of course I went the first quad combo and it was just like, it was crazy. It was crazy. It was just unbelievable. It was, it was unbelievable. But I remember that moment skating down. I'm like, man, I feel good. And I always loved risking. I love to risk in competition because I love competing. I love that pressure, but there's times where you're like, you got to make a calculated risk. You know, you're like, yeah, I haven't landed a quad in two years. I'm not going to try it. This was like, I landed a few in practice in Munich and Kurt and I would, were dicing in practices, having fun. And it was going quite well in practice there. And the axle was being stupid. 
the quad felt great and I just decided to do it. And it just right then and there, and I just, boom, it happened. It's a great example of having the confidence and the go for it. And what a mic drop moment is what they'd call it today. To it have was done that. Oh my God. And the whole year, when I look back, I was like the skate America uh, fiasco and then the next fiasco. And then all each competition I skated at was like, it was slowly getting better, but it was still hit and miss. And then all I, the, I learned so much that year that that's even in the short program in the, in uh, worlds was crap. And then I get there and I do this, this incredible performance. I made that one mistake and then the rest was fine. Yeah. It was pretty wild. Game changer. Now listen, Elvis, all the triple axle, the quad, this is all well and good, but my 15 year old says she's most impressed that you were on the Simpsons. <laughs> you know, what's two, really funny. You know, it's really funny. Tell us this story in 2004, playing yourself in the Simpsons episode, kill Gill volumes one and two during season 18. Please tell us this story. I'm actually looking at the picture of my, of my, Simpson self right now it's right it's on my I have a printed picture of it because it's hysterical I got the purple jumpsuit with the black skates and the curly hair it's actually really funny um they uh they contacted my agent back then uh the Simpsons show and um I watched some episodes and of course everybody knew the Simpsons and they wanted to do this they wanted to do an Elvis Stoico character and I'm like oh my god you know you made it when yeah. And so they, uh, because I didn't have a work permit to go down to the U S so I couldn't go down and do the voiceover. Cause it's actually my voice. Cause okay. people were like, oh, was that really you? I'm like, yeah, it was me. So, um, they said, Hey, let's, uh, let's shoot it and uh, let's record it in a studio in Toronto. And then we'll just send it down. I said, perfect. So I got to meet some of the cast. I uh, like, I had my headphones on and, and, uh, I'm talking to them by the internet, um, whatever kind of internet we had back then yeah. slow, but it worked. And, um, I was talking to them about it and, and they sent me the script and, and we did this funny spoof on Elvis Stoico in a skating thing and, you know, Homer making fun and, you know, he's a little twinkling in the Lutz and I heard he, you know, I got, I've got a girlfriend in Vancouver. I made up, made up city, made up girlfriend, you know, jo- jokes like that. And it was just, it was a lot of, it was fun. It was so much fun. They sent me some Simpsons paraphernalia and, and, um, I got to tell you, it's really this, the, this story I'm, I'm down uh, starting to do cart racing in Guadalajara, Mexico. And um, that's where Checo Pettis started racing. And I actually got a chance to be on track with Checo, which was amazing uh, when on his off season. So that's just a side note, but I'm on the track. I'm the only white guy. I'm learning Spanish. I'm learning all the, all the vocabulary for racing uh, parts and terminology in Spanish. They don't know nothing about my skating, nothing. And I'm like, I'm loving it. Right. So I'm, I'm doing my thing. And all of a sudden one guy comes running in what a buddy of mine I, I drive with. He's got more experience in me and whatever he runs and he goes, Elvis Stoico, you're on, you were on the Simpsons. Is that you? You're on the Simpsons. And he's talking in Spanish. And I'm like, and I'm like, and I looked down and I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that's me. And I, and then it was, the cat was out of the bag at yeah. that point. Right. And they're, and they, they all got to know me about my skating through the Simpsons in Mexico, in Spanish. Incredible. (laughs) Incredible. And then they all got to know who I was after that. And I was there for like probably eight to nine months racing with these guys, hanging out with them. I'm just a dude from Canada, you know, a gringo from Canada, white guy 
trying to like learn Spanish and, you know, throw around go-karts, shifter carts and stuff. And then they, the guy, they come in and then I, then it changed. Then it was like, Oh my God. I was like, and then they, then they started watching me on YouTube and, and uh, like videos online and stuff like that. And, and I became really good friends with my mechanic there, her ran, ran the mechanic um, shop there. He was, he was looking after me. Great guy. I, um, uh, raced with his son. His son was a really good driver. So I learned a lot from him. And yeah, it was, it was, it was so funny though, that that was the thing that <laughs> switched them over to see who actually, you know, that bird, that part of myself, the persona that people see, right. Instead of just the Elvis guy at the track, you know, it was pretty and funny. I don't mean to be gauche, but are you still, do you still get checks every time uh, they play that episode? It checks in what way? Do you still get residuals or some kind of payment? They, they no, 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 I don't. No, it was a one-time thing. No, no. <laughs> okay. It was a one-time Good. thing. I, I wish it would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Every once in a while it pops up. Like someone even sent me like a video of like, um, was it uh, Brooklyn 99? I don't know if you've seen the episode of the guys like, uh, hey, who am I? Oh, El- Elvis. No, not El- Elvis Stoico, the, the Canadian figure skater. No, not Elvis Stoico. And someone sent that to me. I was just laughing. There was like funny moments like that. My name gets thrown around. While being known as great wherever and, and whatever the source is, as I can tell you that my 15-year-old knows Elvis Stoico best from The Simpsons and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Now, your wife is from Mexico, and she is also a figure skater. The ignorant part of me is I assume Mexico produces figure skaters the way Alaska produces surfers. How, how much skating would have been going on in Mexico? I, how many ice pads would there even be in Mexico for Gladys to have even picked up this sport? Yeah, like where I was living in Guadalajara, there was like one rink. There's like six and a half million people with one barn style arena that was there. But in Monterrey in the north, where my wife is from, there's a few, you know, not major rinks, but there was one that was built. But where she grew up, they had this big makeshift rink. They It was just like cardboard and bubble gum. They put this thing together and it and it worked. It was great. And um, she started skating because she hated being outside in the heat. So she, she, she's athletic. She, she could do running and track, but she always get, get too hot. She hated that. And um, there was a rink in a mall and a lot of the rinks that are there in Mexico are in malls. So it's more for recreational, you know, drop the kids off. I'm going to go shopping, let them go skate, put on some rental skates. So she went and that's what she did. Her mom went uh, to the mall and in the mall, she dropped Gladys off and she started to learn to skate there and she loved it. And then found the local rink and found the coach and started building. And then she became one of the most successful skaters in, in uh, Mexico for, she made the Olympic team back in 2002. They didn't send her because federations are weird that way. She, she qualified and she would have done actually quite well, made the world team. She toured with, um, for Disney for years. So she, she played because of the dark skin and the dark hair and, you know, Pocahontas, Mulan, Jasmine, she played all the characters. And then she got a really great gig with, Feld Entertainment playing Gabriella on High School Musical on Ice. Mm. High School Musical was really big at that point. So she played Gabriella and she toured everywhere around the world. She's been in more countries than I have just because Disney goes everywhere. Yeah. So she toured with them and she jumped on different tours. Um, her cousin actually skates as well. And, and I've skated with him as well. And he did, he's just touring for, uh, uh, for Disney, but there's a lot of really good Mexican skaters that great for, um, for show skating as well. And they're out there doing their thing and, and uh, it, it's wonderful. They just um, there is a there's a big community of, of Mexican skaters there. They just don't have 
there's more facilities in Mexico City, which is good, uh, but not everywhere in Mexico they have those those larger facilities um, to facilitate the skaters. But uh, they definitely love their skating there. There's a there's a group of them. There's not as big as say you know F1 because of Checo Perez or soccer, which yeah. is massive there because you can just yeah. grab a ball and go because skating is very expensive. But uh, no, it was it's wonderful, and we met uh, at an arena in Monterrey. She, I was teaching some kids at a competition. She she showed up coming home from tour. She had a break. I saw her. I looked across the room and was like, there's my wife. I knew right. And we were married a year later. <laughs> to meet your wife at an ice rink in Mexico. That is a unique story. And yeah. you've uh, now educated me on a whole different side of uh, Mexico sport, Mexican sports. Let's bring it back home if we can, as we wrap up. And you've been so great with your time, Elvis. I appreciate that. Richmond Hill, I want to bring you up to speed since you were gone. We are now the city of Richmond Hill. It's no longer just a town. Hard to believe. In 2015, you were chosen to carry the Pan Am torch through Richmond Hill ahead of the Pan Am Games. That, I assume, was a thrill. But even more thrilling is the arena named after you at Young and 16th, Elvis Stoico Arena. Now, most public buildings are named after someone that's long passed on. Obviously, for you to still be here and able to enjoy it in your family. Talk about how much that meant to you to carry the torch lead up to the Pan Am Games and to have this incredible arena named after you. Yeah, it was, oh my gosh, like to, to, to carry the torch then. I remember the torch, actually the Olympic torch came through in 1988. And uh, I actually got to hold it because I was um, Canadian junior champion. And uh, they knew I was Canadian junior champion. They said that would be great for you to hold the torch and um, be there as it comes through for Calgary which was great. And that really inspired me for again, again, Alberville, which was four years later, um, Pan Am games. Amazing. And it was funny because the, um, uh, Pan Am games were down in Guadalajara in 2010. Mm-hmm. So if down or was it? T- t- yeah, t- I think it was 2010 or 2011. So I was in Guadalajara, it was there. And then I come back to Canada and then it's here. So it was really cool because I got to watch some stuff there. We all different events there with, with my wife. And then when we came back to Canada, it was here. And to be a part of that and be part of the community. They all, I always get invited back to do stuff in Richmond Hill. As I used to say, a little north, a little nicer. That was Remember that? They used to say that? Yeah. Now it's a little north, a little more crowded. It's and, just, you know. and a little more dysfunctional on our uh, city oh, government. But Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. But uh, in, I remember... Um, I came home um, uh, from, uh, you know, I, I won nationals that year, 94, won nationals, uh, Olympic silver, won worlds. It was a massive year. I got all these sponsorships and all this notoriety and phone, go, you know, ringing off the hook and my agent like doing different things. And, um, and then Richmond Hill goes, yeah, the observatory arena was called, it was called the observatory arena. I actually, opened that arena when I was a junior in 1987 because it was it would open up in 1987 I was there uh with with um Tracy Wilson and Rob McCall uh people should know that name if they're in figure skating they won a bronze at the Olympics in 88 Rob McCall's now passed away but uh Tracy Wilson works with with Brian Orser at, at the Toronto Cricket Club and she did a lot of commentary for years they were skating I skated with them. We opened up that arena. I opened up that arena in 87. And then a number of years later, um, seven or eight years later, I end up, they changed the name and, and um, it was a, it was a huge, huge thing. And uh, I remember when I came back, we came up to Canada 
and Gladys came for the first time. I said, I got to take you by the, this rink. Yeah. I took her by the rink. She's like, Oh my God, that's named after you. And I'm like, yep. And she, and he smiled. She goes, I take a picture of this. So uh, she took a picture and, and it was kind of a cool moment, but yeah, it always makes me smile when I drive by there and people go, Hey, I skated at your rink. And I'm like, well, it's not my rink. It's just named after you. I don't own it. Thank God. Cost is, of a rink is a whole other thing, but yeah. That is a power move to take your, uh, your, your, well, I guess she was your wife at the time, but to, to go on a date and take your, your partner to an arena named after you. That's a power move. I wanted to ask when, when uh, public skating, it's five bucks entered. Do you ever pull the card and say, hey, I'm Elvis Stoiko. Do you, do you have to pay admission to skate at your own arena or how does that work? <laughs> I, I have, um, it's kind of like a, the town, if I need ice, they help me out and it's wonderful. Like I can call them up and say, I need to grab some ice and I try not to take ice for, away from anybody else. Um, so I, I can get some ice there if I need to, to do some training on my own or what have you, but I usually jump on, um, there's a couple of really great figure skating clubs, uh, that are running in, in, um, in Richmond Hill, of course, York region, uh, skating, um, school, which is run by Tracy Wayman, who is a legend in, in Canadian skating. Um, her partner, uh, Gregor Filipowski, who I competed against, uh, he was from Poland and he's running the school with her. And then of course, Bob Emerson that runs the, the Richmond training center and I'll train there as well. So I'll go and skate with the young skaters on the elite session and kind of, you know, motivate them and be there for them. And, and, and uh, they let me skate for free, which is great. I can just jump on and skate with them. Well, I'm going to add something to your list, Elvis. I want to give a shout out to the Richmond Hill lightning under 16 ringette team. I am the coach and we actually have our practices at Elvis Stoico arena. <laughs> Last year, we finished seventh in the province. This year, we're going directly to the moon. I am publicly issuing an open invitation to Elvis Stoiko, the championship skater, to suit up in ringette equipment and join us for a practice one day in the future. So when, you, when we get you back up to Richmond Hill, we're going to get you on the ice with the girls because uh, that's a great way to show off your uh, – you pull oh, a quad be... loop with them and you'll, you'll be on your keister. I'll tell you that. Oh, that'd be fun. I've never played ringette. So that would be so much fun to get out there. I do work with hockey players all the time. Uh, I throw on my hockey skates and, and I do a lot of work with um, young skaters getting their, you know, skating skills. I, I'll be honest with you. I can't shoot a puck to save my life. I'm terrible at stick handling, but um, you know, I can move pretty good on a set of skates and, and uh, there's a few things I can, I can help out with. So now it'd be fun to get out there and, and play uh, play with the girls, man. That would be a lot of fun. Thank Book you. It. We're going to make that happen. Elvis, as we wrap up again, thank you so much for your time. What are your plans for the remainder of 2022 and beyond? What are you working on? Uh, literally trying to pull together um, some sponsorship for my racing. Um, I, during the last year, uh, I was able to, uh, with my one of my partners, build two race cars to Audi race cars. I was just racing this weekend at the lucky dog series, which is a grassroots endurance series, eight hours racing. Um, I was sprinting cause we didn't have enough drivers, but I was testing the car and getting ready for the season, but I want to move up the ladder and, and get into pro racing level. Maybe one day doing touring car or Porsche cup racing. That's, that's one of my dreams. I've always wanted to race Porsche. Um, and then of course my acting, uh, I love my acting. Uh, I will be actually teaching courses, at uh, the LB Acting Studio, Louis Bomander School. Uh, Louis and I have been working for a number of years. He's done a lot of privates with me, and he loves how my function and what I've done in regards to um, basically shortening my learning learning curve, like like learning so quickly, and bringing all the I guess. Um, 
skills of ath- athletics into the acting realm. And of course, with my, the artistry involved and understanding body awareness, uh, he believes I can bring a lot to the table. And I think I can too. I've learned a lot and, and it's been wonderful. I've been able to get a really good camaraderie with a lot of casting agents and so forth. I'm doing quite well with it. So um, I'll be teaching uh, the courses there. We're doing a course this, um, this fall at a school, which I'm really excited. So continuing my acting, which is what I absolutely love. That's my other balance. It's my artistic side. Mm-hmm. And then my competitive thing that feed both of them feed my soul, but the racing, which has been in my soul since I've been a kid. I, I, I don't want to scare people if I've got fans, but I do want to hang up my skates at one point. Um, Cause I, I've done it for so long and uh, you know, I, I do love it, but the, I've got to do some stuff to really feed my soul. And those are the two things I want to do and enjoy it to the fullest. So hopefully I can get those two things rolling and uh, yeah, get out there and, and do my thing and uh, you know, uh, enjoy life and, and share that enthusiasm. And I, and I, I always tell people to really connect with their inner child and do it there, what they feel and, and take the risks and, you know, if they don't want to do the desk job, leave the desk job and do what they love doing. And there's a way to, 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 to go after what they love doing and, and enjoy life to the fullest, especially with all the, with all the craziness that's been going on and the way the world is changing so quickly and the, the pressures of everything. I, I, I don't listen to media. I don't deal with media. I, I follow my path. I enjoy my life. I look after my wife. I, I, I love my dogs. I love there, my, my friends. And I just, you know, just try to, live every day to the fullest. And, and, um, you know, I, I think all the people that have been, you know, even writing me on Instagram, that's the only one I use right now. Um, following me, uh, there as well. I've got, you know, there's some nutrition stuff on there. There's some, a bit of skating stuff on there. There's the acting stuff. There's a the racing. I've got a, a collage of things there, but thanks to all the, the people that have supported me and they're still like fans and, uh, they've been amazing. So thank you so much. And Andrew, thank you for this great opportunity to chat with you and, and talk uh, some great stories that popped up into my head. And you, you're, you're very, you're, you, you came in so prepped with all these really cool things that I didn't even know that the whole, the whole dress thing with uh, Nancy Kerrigan is it's like <laughs> mint. I'm like, that is awesome. And if I think back, I'm like, Oh my God, I think that is the outfit. Cause I remember that the outfit she was wearing with this, they used to have the sweaters with the wrap on it. It was an old like nineties thing. And, and Oh my God, that's, that's awesome. I love that. Well, I got a lot more for you. And once we get you back up here, I'm going to buy you bacon and eggs at three coins over on Young and Major Mac, uh, our Richmond Hill Diner, still there. Perfect. Where can we best follow you, Elvis, social yeah. media-wise? Yeah, Instagram, it's Elvis1S Stoico. So it's Elvis instead of two S's in the middle. So it's Elvis Toiko. Okay. <laughs> and it's pretty, it, it, it basically says, I know I don't get a, a, a verified check mark on it, but um, that's the one it says. It's the only social media account I have. And it's just got a, it's just got a headshot of me. Uh, Gladys runs it. Uh, my wife runs it for me because I hate dealing with social media, but we try to post as much as we can. And, and uh, that's my main thing on there. And we do have, a, uh, um, I think we still have, an, uh, there's a few YouTube channels. We got the Elvis, the, the Stoico way is one of them. And then there's a racing one that we've got out there, ES Racing, that we're using to kind of help promote. It takes time to kind of build, but um, the racing stuff I'm, I'm doing, um, you know, quite, a lot of, lot of time I'm putting into it. So we're trying to build on that as well. Fabulous. Well, it's so fabulous to catch up with you. Fabulous to see everything you're still into. Carpe diem. You're all about seize the day. It's a great message. So thanks. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. 
To our listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. On behalf of Elvis Stoiko, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Candace Sampson, the voice behind what she said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.